bit awkward if I go, er. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to church. It's uh, wonderful to be with you. Uh, if you're online, you are with us, even though we'd love you to be part of uh, being in person. If for whatever reason you can't, you're still with us in spirit. It's so good to be together. My name is Paul, if we've not met. Uh, and I just want to tell you, um, I've recently worked out that prayer works. Um, <laughs> I'm sure many of you were there a long time ago. Um, but I'm, I'm just overflowing with a bunch of stuff that's happened recently. Firstly, what's cool about it is um, God just kind of got me praying for people uh, more than I've ever wanted to before. I've suddenly found myself wanting to pray for random people. And just to give you a few highlights from the last few weeks, um, cancer, a scary, rare, terrifying cancer in a young person, full remission, amazing. A marriage that was... Um, the worst kind of broken because both people were very nice and there was no clear sin. Like they were just each lonely in their marriage and the thing seemed to have like a do not resuscitate sign on it. Just randomly I've started praying for them over the last little while. Saw uh, the wife the other day and she just says, we're so passionately in love with one another, which when uh, 60 year old people, I think they're that if they're watching, I'm stressing now. Um, like when they just say uh, that they've like just fallen back in love with one another, I'm just like, oh my goodness. Um, we had a guy who ended up having a breakdown at an institution, it was looking dreadful, uh, just praying for him, and um, just a, like, an, he got a really helpful, amazing diagnosis, which suddenly makes a whole lot of sense of years and years of stuff, he's home, he's healthy, there's hope for the first time that he's had in ages, um, another mate uh, that, I'll, I'll leave the details vague so that for, for his privacy, but we spent 24 hours basically thinking he was dead, um, and he's alive, and home, and fine, um, and I just, I could go on, but Prayer works. If, you, if you're facing something, um, here's what you need to do. Don't pray sort of vaguely and arbitrarily. Take the time to figure out exactly what it is you want and why you want it. Do the hard work of connecting it to the need that's inside yourself. Expose your heart to God, not just your need at a sort of surface level. And then just stand back and watch. I'm telling you, we have a God who's alive, who's doing stuff. Um, and I have, in light of my sudden newfound uh, belief in prayer, um, been praying for you this morning quite a lot. Uh, I'm really trusting, I've been asking God, begging with him, that regardless of how well or not well I execute this, um, that you're going to leave here at the end of this next 30 minutes that we have feeling light. I've been praying that God will make you so buoyant as you walk out of here that your feet barely touch the ground, that your shoulders look different because there's no load on them, that you are going to be so easily swept along in the things God has for you because whatever pressure or burden or guilt or stress or worry or anxiety or whatever other thing that's been on you is just going to get amputated during the next 30 minutes. Um, and now that I've discovered that prayer works, I'm just going to assume that's going to happen. So I'm just going to tell you stories for the next little while and trust that God does whatever he does. Um, but we're, um, we're in week two of a series. I have struggled to get my head around this, this series title. Because go and make. I mean, I know you're all sitting around just longing for an authority figure to get up and give you more to do. I know that the big problem facing mankind right now is that we all have loads of energy, loads of extra resource, loads of extra time to worry about other people, and all we need is someone to just get up and give us an instruction to go do something. The more complicated and difficult, the better. Said no one ever, like especially not now. Um, when you tell me go and make, I think you mean like my bed. <laughs> or like, go and make an effort. Go and make the client happy. Go and make it right with your sister. Go and make it right with Metro Police. Um, or whatever it might be. It's like... An instruction, I don't know if it's um, 
just that I'm so much sort of less of a team player than you guys. But if someone was to say to me, hey, Paul, go and make, I might go, I think you'll find I'm going to stay and probably break some stuff just because you said that. You know, like Durban, if social media is to be believed, is basically capable of go and bake banana, banana bread. That's about like all we're able to do during lockdown. But that's kind of the point. Ross was saying last week that the Holy Spirit's almost like dared him to do a sermon series that is exactly not answering a question that Durban is asking right now. Normally we make a huge effort to figure out what is the specific question that Durban is asking and then how do we show them how the gospel is the antidote or the solution. In this case, we're going to have a conversation for four weeks about something that most folks wouldn't necessarily want to have a conversation about. But the fact that God initiated it means this is actually really exciting, more exciting maybe than those other sermon series that make sense for good reasons. Uh, God wants to talk to you about something. And the instruction, go and make, comes out of something that we all call the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey what I've commanded. And that instruction, can we just be honest for a moment? Christians, I think, prefer you to ask them to confess sin or give money or dance prophetic dances, then tell like, I have to go and convert people. Oh, no, I'm supposed to want to do that, but I don't want to do that. I know I'm supposedly able. I don't know how to do that. It's, It's not something that seems to come naturally to me or most Christians. Most of us, if we're honest, it's just like, flip, well, if I could like nominally play some small part in a big production line that other professionals are in charge of, then like, maybe I've done my duty. It's not something that would normally get people coming to church to listen to how to do it. Um, go and make, oh, flip, be more, try harder. Oh, I'm not sure I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm spiritually successful enough. Now, the truth is, all those objections are dwarf. I'm not even going to spend time on them because I don't believe that's the issue. But the truth is, this message, the good news that Jesus is alive, that he is actually God, that he has come to forgive sinners and connect you back to a good father. The fact that God is in control no longer has to sound like a threat. It can now sound like good news because you're going to connect to him. And, like This message works best in the hands of very, very unqualified people. It does. The, the, that news that God has come to grab hold of hopeless cases sounds most authentic and believable and impressive when it's coming out of the mouth of a hopeless case. So we're all qualified. Those objections don't make sense. But the objections are not really the point. I think so much of the time at church when we have objections about theology or how things must work or how worship should be done or how anything should happen, we tend to talk about it like it's a rational objection thing. It's always a hard thing. It's not about your objections. It's about your motivations. It's not about my objections and excuses. It's about my motivations. Here's how I know. Do this thought experiment with me. Someone comes to you and says, "Um, I'm moving house. Would you like to come help me? Uh, And you, like everybody else, say, I'm busy that day. I would love to, right? And then they say, well, don't worry. It doesn't have to be that day. Uh, It could be any day. And then because you're smart, you go, "Uh, what day did you have in mind? And they say, well, how about today? You go, oh, sorry, man. Today, I'm just, you know, on the phone. I've just finished the gym. I stink, bro. You, like, no, don't worry. I stink too. It'll be fine. You can come anyway. Um... No, but really, I, I'm going to have my kids with me. I'm gonna, I've got to pick them up. My kids are very irritating. No, it's all right. My kids will be with me as well. They're also irritating. It's fine. You can come. And at that point, when almost every other excuse has been exhausted, if you have the good fortune to be married, you get to pull on the one probably best reason to be married, which is you get to say, bro, I just remembered my wife had something for me to do today. I'm so sorry. 
Just like in the fine print, there are other reasons to get married. Um, but the reason is, it's got nothing to do with the objections, right? It's got to do with the motivation. I just don't want to. And I'm not honest enough, or I'm too polite to just tell you, I can't bear the sight of you today. So you come up with all sorts of other reasons. This issue, go and be involved in telling people about Jesus, being involved in their conversion, bringing them home to God. At some point, letting them know that they're a sinner that desperately needs forgiveness. Like, oh, like, oh crumbs, I'm busy that day. So let's figure out why we should actually want to do this, if at all, before we have anyone else tell us, go and make. What are the reasons why we should be motivated? I think there are three. The first one, because I said so. (laughs) Not me, for goodness sake. Please don't do anything because the church leader says, because I said so. That's always a bad idea. But no, Jesus says, because I said so. Let's go to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Let's read it together. From verse 19, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now that instruction, that most famous piece of scripture, starts with a therefore. And if there was a cooler, less cringy way to say this, I would give it to you, but this works so irritatingly well, I have to tell you this. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you always need to ask yourself what it's therefore. Okay, but it works. So there's a therefore here. Jesus is saying there's a rational flow. There's, a, there's something that makes this instruction reasonable and makes sense. There's a context that it fits into. What's the previous line of logic? Well, let's go back to verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That's quite a flex from Jesus. Guys, We have to be very careful because Scripture is full of things like taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, come all who are thirsty. Jesus loves to meet your needs. Jesus is very desirable. People came looking for a free lunch and he gave them one. Consumeristic mindset is okay as a way to get to God. But if we stop there, you serve him. He doesn't serve you. You are his much more than he is yours. And at some point, we need to get our heads around the idea that he gets to be in control. Because I said so, from him is enough. And let me say, that's a wrestle. I'm so sympathetic. I struggle with that wrestle. Who's in control? Who's really the king? I really want this stuff. You will not have a moment's peace until you've finally settled that issue. He is the king of my heart. He is in control of the steering wheel. He is the Lord of my life. He is the honored guest and chief generalissimo head honcho of every part of my life. Not Beckett Gole. And Christians who have not quite figured that one out yet never get a moment's peace. I honestly see people who are sort of struggling to work out who is in charge and think you, almost, you would probably be happier if you hadn't got saved yet. Once you've gotten saved, you very quickly need to figure out he's king. Otherwise, you're going to continually arm wrestle with the king of the universe about stuff that he knows much more about than you, but he's so gentle and respectful that he'll let you figure it out on your own time. Because I said so is enough. You know what Proverbs says about this? It says, in all your ways, submit to him, and he'll make your paths straight. Want straight paths? Not those vague return back to beginning, oh, I've wasted the last 10 years, I don't know where I'm going, stumbly, but you want straight, easy paths? Submit to God. You know what James says about this? He says, God opposes the proud, but raises up the humble. Therefore, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. 
I wonder if my pride is making my loving dad oppose me for my own good. And so I eventually figure out, I'm going to have straight paths, and I'm going to see the back of a fleeing devil when I finally work out, he is in control, I am not, he is in charge, I am not, he's the star of the show, I am not. Because I said so is enough, but it's not the only reason. In fact, I don't even think that's the reason God really wants you to do this. In his kindness and his goodness, he's going to force you to that wrestle and allow you to settle that. And if you haven't yet, I can't wait for the joy you'll experience when you do. But there's another reason. Let's go back to Matthew 28, because we might miss this. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Okay, we know this bit. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Reason number two why you should do this. Not because I said so only, but also because I'll be with you. Jesus is saying, I've been given all authority, and I'm busy doing this stuff. Come do it with me. And because I've been given all authority, it's going to go well. And because I've been given all authority, it's my reputation at stake. So come join in the fun. Come be part of this with me. I'm busy with this, and if you are going to join me in it, we get to spend more time together. That desire that God has to be in an intimate relationship with you is actually bringing us very quickly to the third and I think most important reason why this can become a, not, oh, I'm busy that day, or oh, I have to because I'm supposed to, but I really, really am motivated to do this. And reason number three, not because I said so, not only because I'll be with Jesus when I do it, but actually God has this mad idea that he can get you to want to, to actually want to, because I want to. You know, God has had this plan He's been talking about it in the scripture since the beginning. He's been saying, just wait until I reveal this plan. This plan's incredible. And the plan goes like this. And let me give you a few examples of where God talks about it. Ezekiel 11, I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit within them. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Later in that same chapter, he says, no one's going to have to tell you, know the Lord, because everyone will know him already from the least to the greatest. Philippians 2 says, it's God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. It's God, not you or me, who's going to work in you and get you to will, to want, and act, behave the way he wants you to. God's whole plan, the whole amazing mystery that he's using the church to kind of show off this plan to principalities that we can't even imagine, this, this genius idea that God has is that when it comes to not doing bad things and doing good things, morality and ministry, it's not going to be because I said so. It's not even going to be because I want to be with you. It's going to be I actually want to. God thinks he can take human hearts and so transform them that you want to do this stuff. That's a big idea. I, I, I know you don't necessarily know how to make your face look when you hear a thought like that. But in every part of life, if I can enter into this conversation with God, he's saying, pick a thing. Uh, in the area of your sexuality, in the area of the way you work, in the area of the way you engage with the church, oh, I don't really feel like going there. I don't really like worship music anyway. I know I'm supposed to save myself for marriage. I don't really feel like it. I know I'm supposed to trust God in this area. I don't really feel like it. Like, I'm supposed to forgive people, but that's hard, and I prefer to kick their ass. and like, Whatever else. If you can just admit I don't, really, I don't really want to do this thing God is telling me to do. You're finally starting to ask the right questions. Because he's saying, I have a way to put the correct desires inside you, the glorious ones. I don't want you to do it out of guilt. I don't want you to do it even out of just basic obedience, as much as that's fair enough. 
I want you to come to me and have a proper conversation about why it is you don't yet want the things I've told you I can make you want. Does that make sense? This is very exciting for me because I've spent so much of my life trying to get myself somewhere that God is saying, I just want to make it natural. I just want to make it come naturally. It's still going to require some effort, but the effort's going to be about, like Amy was saying in communion, reminding myself of who you really are, of who I really am, of how the world really works. So at that point, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to assume that, in fact, if you have allowed Jesus into your life, there is a part of you that does long already to be involved in introducing people to him. There's a part of you that is just busting to go and be a missionary to Durban or to your school or to whatever. There's a part of you that is just irritated with the other part of you that keeps on going, oh, no, if, but, and it's longing to go and get on with it. And so I'm just going to show you a story. You may already know some of this story. Um, it's about an absolutely hopeless case uh, who, who meets Jesus. And um, I want you to allow that other part of your heart, the part that God claims he's already put in you, to just react and respond as you listen to this. Uh, we've been part of Olive Tree Church uh, since about 1996. In about 2002, we decided to run our first Alpha course, which was the first time we'd done something like this. So it was at a time in my life when uh, Charlotte and I had been married about a year. We had not had an easy first year of our marriage, which was difficult for a number of reasons, but um, it was a very dark time of my life. Um, the leadership team asked us to please think of someone who we could invite, which was a bit daunting because we'd never done something like this before. So I asked God to place someone in my heart who I should invite. And I just remember this one afternoon sitting on my mom's bed um, with a very good friend of hers and just kind of really having a kind of sob session, confession session. I just remember at one point that my Mom's friend like stopped and said very seriously, Nat, somebody's going to ask you to do something this week that's got something to do with God, and you need to say yes. At that point, uh, Tyler, my son, was doing extra math lessons um, with a lovely lady in Devon North. And at that time, I was teaching this absolute darling little boy um, extra math lessons. And um, I felt God saying that I needed to invite her to Alpha. I really didn't think this was right, because I didn't know her, so it felt like a bit of an awkward ask. I just remember one afternoon, his mum coming up to me, and she was clearly nervous. She was, I didn't know her well at all, but I, I could tell that this was not easy for her. The following week, I, I saw her again, and I plucked up the courage, and I actually asked her. And uh, she asked me if I would be interested in joining an Alpha course. Because I could like, hear this voice of my mom's friend, I, I knew that I shouldn't just turn this down. And to my amazement, she actually said she'll chat to her husband and she'll consider it. He had never wanted to do it. He'd never been even vaguely interested. So um, it was quite surprising to me when I kind of casually asked him about it. He just said, yes, cool, let's do it. Um, the following week when I got to see her, um, she actually said yes, that they were going to come and join us to do Alpha. I was um, quite surprised and, and so relieved, actually, and really excited to be partnering with her, to be doing this course with her. You know, we kind of arrived there probably deeply suspicious, um, but I definitely had a clear sense that we were meant to be there. And every night we would get home from Alpha and sit in our car for hours um, smoking. <laughs> but no, more importantly, talking about these things that were becoming a part of our conversations. And these deep, meaningful questions that we were um, so aware were really important to answer. We just couldn't wait for each week to come and ultimately got to the weekend away and made the most important decision that we as a couple have ever made, um, which was actually to invite Jesus into our lives. So I just remember that moment um, that I think 
all of the questions. It just kind of all made sense in that moment um, where we made that incredible decision. We actually really started to bond um, in a friendship um, and now um, today we've got such an amazing friendship. Over the years and you know me and I became very good friends and very good family friends. Um, our children are friends, our husbands are friends, even our, our parents are friends, even our nannies are friends, um, which was really amazing. We could see that, that there had been this incredible moment of God having prepared something, you know, and whilst it was such a scary thing for her, I know, to invite us to, there was us on the receiving end who were just so aware that there was this God who had a purpose for us and he had an intention and he was pursuing us and chasing us and how he just wove these various people into the story that then we got to be the beneficiaries of because of this brave ask of Mia and Sharon and this brave word of my mom's friend that our lives have completely and utterly changed. I can't even imagine we would be had it not been for that courageous ask and um, the joy that we get as we also include people into the story. There was just this massive almost conspiracy of God to bring all these people and stories together so that we could be invited into this. It's amazing. When I um, was honest enough to sit with God and ask him, why am I not really that excited about this stuff? You know what he said to me? He said, Paul, you actually love this story. Friends, you actually love this story. Even if you just practice telling it to Christians. That God exists, that he crossed the cosmos and what's even more amazing, the gap between his holiness and my sin and came to us in the form of Jesus. That Jesus is still alive. He's not in a tomb in the Middle East. The tomb is empty. He's alive, able to forgive sinners. Introduce us into relationship with that magnificent, good, deeply good God who used to be our enemy. And then by his spirit is able to get inside us and regenerate us. That is amazing. It's a beautiful story. And God just like reminded me, hey, Paul, you, you love talking about that. And you do. And then the other thing that God started to show me is, and Paul, when I deal with your insecurities, when you stop feeling judged by them or judging them, when you stop feeling intimidated by them or like you need to control them, when you just look at human beings, they're actually beautiful too. You actually love them. You love talking about this and you love talking to them. It comes naturally. And when you start to allow God to just let you know that stuff, you can begin to take some baby steps of actually... There is this thing that I love talking about, and there is maybe this one person on earth that you do think maybe you would love talking to about it. And then the Holy Spirit can start to flow. Not because I said so, not out of guilt, not forcing it, because that's only ever going to pr produce short-term results. Let me show you a story as we come to the end of this, of where Jesus just does an amazing job of modeling it. It comes out of Luke 7. This is one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. And uh, Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house. So let's read it from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's um, sort of gentle language for she, she worked the streets, um, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So zone in on that as opposed to my sort of awkward euphemism for the fact that she was a prostitute. Zone in on the fact that she heard news that Jesus was eating at someone's house. Okay, just lock that away. We're going to come back to that idea. She, there was a rumor going around that Jesus was eating with someone. She goes 
she, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owe money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, said Jesus. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet, has not stopped all meal. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who even forgives sins? Who is this? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to just help you get the picture here, right? Okay. So the context is amazing. It was common in that day for the knowledgeable to have a meal, you know, the important people, and then commoners would be allowed to come and hang around the outskirts and listen to what amazing, inspiring conversation was going on, even though they weren't invited. Okay, let me, so there are no tables and chairs, so this is what it looks like, okay, this is turning into a memorable preach now, for goodness sake. Jesus is, Jesus is reclining at the table, okay, so the table's over here, his guests are over there, this is how you sit, you had to have to have a good core to eat in those days, and, um, and guys didn't have to rock onto one, one butt cheek during the meal when that moment happened, you were already able to relieve yourself. So, um, so Jesus is having a conversation, okay, and the whole way through the meal, there's a lady on the outskirts, where the commoners are supposed to be. But she's not doing what commoners are supposed to do. She's, she's come behind him, okay, and she spends the entire meal, think about this, weeping, broken, pouring tears out of her, shooting tears out of her eyes, and wetting his feet. And then she lets down her hair, which, if you know any of the context, is an incredibly suggestive or very private thing to do. Lets down her hair, takes the tool of her trade, this very expensive perfume, and wastes it on Jesus, and is just pouring out her heart for the entire meal. And Jesus lets her. He thinks it's appropriate. He doesn't stop her. Now, what causes, what would cause me, what would cause you to have that kind of outpouring of emotion? Is she in awe of the purity and holiness of this man, and in horror at her own sin? That would be a good place to start. Don't forget Mount Sinai, the temple, the, the center of the tabernacle when, Jesus, when Israel was camping. For an unclean thing, animal, person, anything, to get anywhere near the holy God was deadly. She's risking her life to be next to the king of kings, the holy one. She's unclean and she gets to touch his feet. I hope you have moments like this. I can think of some where you just recognize the, how impossible it should be for you to get anywhere near such beauty, and yet you've been allowed in, and she's breaking her heart about that. Perhaps she's also, maybe, I'm theorizing, maybe she's got some sense of 
And she's grown up on the sacrificial system where something innocent had to pay for you to have access. And I wonder if she's sitting there going, this man who is just incredible, I wonder if he's going to suffer somehow in order that this forgiveness was possible. I wonder if she had some sense that this was going to cost this beautiful, perfect guy who had no business paying anything in order to let her come near him. I wonder if she was sensing the kind of regret of years lived foolishly and sinfully when she could have spent every moment with him. And yet I wonder also if there were tears of like joy and gratitude. I'm going to spend every second of the rest of my life getting as close to this man as I possibly can. I can't believe he's letting me near him. And so she weeps, and Jesus goes, that's right. That's appropriate. The Pharisees, as you can imagine, are freaking out. Not only are they getting weirded out by this sort of public display of emotion, I wonder if some of them are feeling guilty at their own desires as they watch her movements. She would have struck an interesting sight. She was a prostitute, so can you picture. I mean, legalists are always most strict on the sin in others, which they actually know they're guilty of themselves. And so I wonder if they're watching what she's doing and they're feeling desires of their own that they feel guilty about and they're angry about that. And so they are also muttering to themselves, going, oh, who's this guy? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's messing up. She shouldn't be here. This is embarrassing. And don't you love how patient Jesus is with them? Now, the Pharisees suck, right? They're the losers of every story in the Bible. And yet Jesus talks more to Pharisees than he talks to anyone else. Many of them, we have good reason to believe, get saved. Jesus, here's the amazing thing for me. He is not intimidated by suffering and emotion. He's not intimidated by angry, bad theology. He's just still. He's just himself. When he sees suffering, he doesn't think it's contagious. You and I, when we see suffering, we think it's contagious. We think, I've got enough going on of my own. I don't want to have to go near their issues. They can sort themselves out. There's a pastor up the road at a church that I can send them to as quickly as possible. Jesus doesn't feel like he has to take responsibility for their suffering. He doesn't feel like it's suddenly going to cost him. He's just confident that he's got the antidote. Not scared of suffering. Not scared of angry, bad theology on Facebook. Able to go towards those guys that most of us want to flee from because they're scary. Jesus is not scared. Patient with the Pharisees. Patient with this broken-hearted lady. And then I love this moment where he starts, the point's been made, and then it's like they all just disappear. And he turns to her, and she's the most important person in the world. And she says, don't, he says, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. It's, I, I get the impression he wants to sort of get her out of the limelight, stop her being the center of attention as soon as possible. Just, I don't want any more embarrassment for you. Your devotion was right. He didn't stop it. And I want you to go in peace. And Jesus was moved by his massive love for her. You and I are only going to do any good at representing the gospel of grace if firstly we're not motivated by guilt. If you're motivated by guilt, if you're doing it because you think you have to, you're obviously going to suck at demonstrating the gospel of grace. If you're doing it out of guilt, it's clearly not going to work. Also though, and I suppose really important, if the thing you think you're trying to invite people into is powerless, what I mean is many Christians that I know recognize guilt's not right. So then we see, well, God is holy, and, he, and we try the obedience thing, because I said so, because we think that's fair enough. And you try obedience, but you fail, and then because you know about grace, you don't beat yourself up. But after a while, you're just living, well, it's not victorious in any way. Nothing's really changed. If you're in that massively demotivating space, 
Jesus is saying, no, there's another thing. There's a third reason. I can change you. I can get inside your heart and make you want the right stuff. If you'll be vulnerable and honest and stop just trying to do obedience and thinking that's all it is. If you allow me to change you from the inside out, this is a powerful message. And you can allow him to cause you to actually fall in love. I love talking about this message. It's so beautiful. And then because all your insecurities are stripped away, I love these people. I'm not threatened by them anymore. I can't wait to tell them about this stuff. There's um, a few little things I, I want us to try. Okay, so remember I said at the beginning, just take note that she heard someone was having Jesus over for, for lunch. Reminds me of that line out of Revelations chapter 3, verse 20, that, that like I'm standing at the door knocking. If you'll let me in, I'll come in and we'll, have, we'll eat like friends. That's the New Living Translation. I love that rendering because that's the most accurate way. We're going to sit down and there's going to be peace between us and intimacy between us and unity between us. We're going to eat together. Jesus wants to be eating with someone. Now, the truth is, the one person that didn't know who he was, was the, the Pharisees had no idea who he was. They didn't recognize who they were entertaining, did they? Maybe he's not even a prophet. They extend him the minimum courtesy. The one person who did really know who she was having a meal with was that lady. She knew who Jesus really was. When people hear that you're having dinner with Jesus, when he is the honored guest in every part of my life, they're going to be queuing up. They're going to hear and ask me. Can you imagine that lady going off from that Pharisee's house, from Simon's house? People are going, hey, Mary, that thing that went down, can you introduce me to Jesus? You seem to know him. There would have been great questions being asked. She reminds me of another lady with a similarly bad reputation that Jesus meets at a well in Samaria. Remember her? Lady at the well, and Jesus has a conversation. She wants to talk about mountains and buckets and dwarf stuff. And then she works out, I'm having dinner with Jesus. She works out who he is. Immediately, there's not, well, because he said so. Jesus doesn't have to tell her what to do. In that moment, she's just, he's forgiven me. He wants to be my friend. She's so in love with him. What does she do? She runs off to the town to tell everyone. No one had to say, you must, you ought to. No church leader had to, like, fan a flame of motivation. She just automatically rushes off. All she wants to do is tell people about Jesus. And do you know what? When you do it like that, it works. They all come rushing back with her. Who is this guy you're talking about? What's going on in your life? And they all meet Jesus as a result. You actually love this message, Paul. You actually love people. You love talking about him. You love those people you want to talk about him to. Friends, if you've allowed him into your heart, you have the same heart he did, demonstrated in that moment. There's, a, there's a, one little caveat here. There's one clause. There is one group of people that this won't work on. It's in the story that Jesus tells. If you don't think you really need this, it's not really going to cause that love to bubble up. My heart needs to skip a beat when I think about Jesus. It does when I remind myself and pay attention. But if you think you're generally okay, if you've bought into the thing that this society is telling us, which is that you're great, you are your best asset, be authentic, don't let anyone tell you not to be, the haters can hate, you, you know, who you are is your best, is enough. Like it's, God begs to differ. No, no, you see, he thinks your heart is fundamentally wrong. He wants to give you a new one. He thinks your personality is fundamentally flawed. He wants to make you like someone else. That's the opposite of being authentic. He wants to make you like Jesus, not like you. However, the amazing news is as he does that, as you're humble enough, as you're open enough to say, okay, well, yeah, there's some stuff here that even obedience to someone who deserves it, I just can't pull that off. I'm going to fail. I'm going to run out. I'm going to become interested in something else. 
and you lock eyes with this person who's knocking at the door saying, I want to come in and have a meal with you. I don't just want to tell you because I said so, even though I could, even though it's good for you to figure out that I'm in control. I want you to fall in love with me because you love this message. It's beautiful. And then as I take off your insecurities and your stuff, you're going to look around at people and you're going to actually see them and you're going to love them. And you can then, like me, start to take the odd baby step of going, okay, well, I may not be able to save all of them. (laughs) I may not be as impressive as Ross or someone. But I do really love Jesus. And I do find randomly that I am loving this person. And then let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we want to see you. We don't want to be like Simon and have you for dinner and not notice who you really are. Just so glorious. It, it does break our hearts. You're so holy. You're so good. We have no business being in your presence. We have no business having a friend like you. Would you cause our hearts to skip a beat as we remember again that there is a good God in heaven who is in control, who's come after us and sent his son at great cost to purchase us and hasn't just left us alone as orphans, but has put his Holy Spirit inside us to regenerate us so that there is hope for the broken marriage, for the washed out, burnt out business owner, for the addicted pornographer, for the midlife crisis control freak, every single one of us and all the stuff we've got going on, we don't have to fix this alone. Well, Jesus, you've forgiven us from it, but now you are going to free us from it. Would you cause a joy and and a love to well up inside us? And then God, every single person here, let this be some kind of catalytic moment that we just walk out into the world and start to love the world, like you did. That we start to represent you in our conversations, that we take off our insecure lenses and we just see people as you see them. And the Holy Spirit, will you do amazing stuff? Amen. He really is amazing, hey? If you, um, if you want prayer, if you want to get to know him, remind yourself, please come forward. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, put your masks on, go have some coffee. See you next week. <laughs>